Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we talk to the CEO of Tennis Manitoba, Michael Downey, on Gabrielle Dabrowski's history-making win at the U.S. Open. And then Kirby Shep, head coach of the Bisons men's basketball team, talks to us about Canada winning bronze at the FIBA World Cup. That's all coming up on the podcast. History was made yesterday at the U.S. Open as Ottawa's Gabrielle Dabrowski became the first Canadian woman to win a woman's doubles title at a Grand Slam. Alongside Aaron Routliff, who was born in New Zealand and represents them, but has spent much of her life here in Canada and, in fact, resides here. Took out Laura Sigamund and Vera Zvonareva in straight sets to capture the title just weeks after they began playing together. For more on this triumph, I caught up with the CEO of Tennis Canada, Michael Downey, earlier today, and I started by asking him about the mood at Tennis Canada HQ today. Well, it's stating the obvious. Everyone's really, really excited. Um, it's a great honor that what she's uh, achieved here and to be the best in the class in doubles um, is so sensational. So we're really, really excited for it. It's so overdue. I know that the general populace pays more attention to singles than doubles. It's no secret that it's more popular. But nonetheless, this is a huge achievement for Canada because we'd never had a woman win a woman doubles major before. Absolutely. It's a first, and we're seeing a lot of firsts. So Gabby winning a women's doubles um, Grand Slams title is a first. You know, the Davis Cup title in 2022 is a first. You know, Bianca winning the U.S. Open Signals title was a first. But uh, I don't want to take anything away from what Gabby Dabrowski's done here. Like, it was stiff competition. They won some very tough matches. They beat some, beat some uh, very difficult competition, and they're a new team. So they've been together five weeks, which makes it even more surreal that they pulled this off. So kudos to, to Aaron and to Gabby. Explain to those who maybe aren't as deep into tennis as you how hard it is to just get together and win a major like that. Well, it's, it's, uh, as I said, it's surreal because, you know, this is your partner. You, you've got to be able to read their mind, you know, who's going left, who's going right. Uh, all of these things that probably are taken for granted by the fans that are watching on television. So chemistry is an enormous part of doubles teams winning and it's being able to know where your, your partner is strong and where your partner isn't as strong and be able to lean on them when you need to lean on them. So the fact that Aaron and Gabby have come together after five weeks is just a sensational result. But I think it also says they knew each other. Like, you know, Aaron is Canadian. She she trained out of our National Tennis Centre. They've got to know each other on the tour. So at least that they knew ind- as individuals, they knew each other. But it's still unbelievable that their first competition was actually in Montreal at the Omnium Bank National in August. And they've only competed together five times and end up winning a Grand Slam title. It's just amazing. And at a tournament where no Canadians won a singles match, I'm sure that was a disappointing thing from Tennis Canada, but this makes it go down a little smoother? Absolutely. Like, you know, every, every, not every slam is going to be as good as the one prior. And, um, you know, our results as a country have been terrific. And unfortunately, it didn't add up this year on the singles end. 
Um, and, you know, for many reasons, some good. You know, Milos was coming back from, from injury. Um, you know, Felix's game isn't there. So there's reasons for that. But, again, that shouldn't take away the fact of what Gabby did. And, quite frankly, Layla did very well in doubles in losing, I guess, the quarterfinal against Gabby and Aaron. But uh, the fact that Gabby has, has, is now a Grand Slam champion in women's double combined with two mixed doubles Grand Slam titles, like – she has she is setting her her foundation here, and there's going to be more great titles for her and Aaron down the road. So on on the topic of of Dabrowski specifically, was this something that you saw and Tennis Canada saw a long time ago that you know doubles should be the discipline and she could do a lot with doubles compared to singles because there is the big difference between being you know good at one and being good at the other. Well, it was a decision she made. You know, at the end of the day, she's a private operator. She's independent. She made a decision years ago to, to focus. And, you know, there are other players that do this. Daniel Nestor did it as well. He got to around 50 in the world in singles. And then for whatever reason decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself a marquee doubles player. And he proved uh, he could do that. And so there was some point in time in Gabby's career where she the light came on and she said, you know what, I, I think I'm going to do better as a dedicated doubles player versus maybe a singles player that plays doubles every once in a while. And I think that showed up on court because she is a, she is, you know, she's got her pedigree. There's no doubt she knows how to play doubles really, really well. There's, she probably hasn't faced anything that, that any doubles player hasn't faced at, at any point in time. And she's had some great partners, and I think she selected good partners in that end. And, and I do want to say, you know, they said in the post-game interviews yesterday or match interviews yesterday that, you know, neither Aaron or Gabby were having a great year. And Gabby's ranking had fallen off, and I, I think it was a bold move on both their parts to actually come together. And they, they actually said in the TV interview that they kind of took a chance with each other. But they knew each other, too, and I think they both wanted to move forward and knew they could do well, and, and I think we saw it in their great results in, in New York. Now, Erin represents New Zealand, had represented Canada for a number of years and, and spent a lot of her life here, was born in New Zealand. Uh, the fact that she's not having the Canada flag beside her name on the Chiron, that doesn't change anything for Tennis Canada? Not at all. Like, it, you know, these decisions get made. And, you know, I don't know Erin all that well, and I don't know all the background of her decision, but I can speculate that, you know, when she finished college in Alabama and had done very well down there, um, she probably looked at the the depth of, of Canadian tennis and said, you know, maybe there isn't a great opportunity for me to play Billie Jean King Cup, which obviously was important to her because the month after she changed to New Zealand. She played for them in Billie Jean King Cup. That was in, I think, July of 2017. But, you know, other players have made these decisions. Um, she's still a Canadian. Uh, we love that she's with Gabby Dabrowski. You know, if Gabby Dabrowski wasn't with, with Aaron, she would probably, you know, she's had partners from all different nationalities. The most important thing is they won. And um, and if Aaron ends up being the best partner Gabby can have, then how that's terrific. Actually, that's just terrific. So we're really proud of not only Gabby, but we're really proud of Aaron as well. Is there a thought to how to make doubles more popular for the general audience? Well, the tour has done a few things where 
Um, you know, they've, they've got rid of the third set and they've gone to the super tie break to kind of shorten the competition. But I think a lot of it has to do with just making sure that the matches are, are profiled on main courts. Um, and, and I think also it helps that if every once in a while, some of the better singles players also play doubles and we're seeing it now, you know, not only with Gabby and Aaron breaking through and winning the U S open yesterday, but the world number one team right now are two Americans and they're both singles players, Pagusa, who's like four in the world and, and Coco Goff who won the U S open. And I think it's good that singles players also play doubles because that helps raise the profile in that end. But I will say, you know, all the experts, and I'm not an expert, but all the experts will say that, you know, playing doubles improves your singles game. There's no doubt about it because it means you've got to be able to play the net game. You've got to have good hands. And I think it's it's helping um, some singles players in that regard. And and Layla would be a prime example of that, who I think her, her doubles game is, is rounding out her singles game. But um, there's no easy answer. And uh, but I, I do think there's a growing interest in in doubles. And especially since there's so many doubles medals to be won in the Olympics, like you've got. You know, if you've got male singles and you've got women singles, you've got, you know, obviously male doubles and uh, female doubles, but you've also got mixed. And I think mixed doubles is also um, an interesting uh, element of tennis that will also increase the profile of doubles because mixed is being added to more events. You know, you've got the Hopkins Cup coming back that's now in, I think, uh, France, and you've got the United Cup which is a nation's cup in Australia that includes mixed doubles. So I think all these, these new elements will help doubles uh, over time. So just looking at the year as a whole, Michael, for Canadian tennis, singles play maybe wasn't spectacular at the Grand Slam level, but Bianca made the mixed doubles final at the French Open, and Layla made the mixed doubles, or the women's doubles final too. And so you've got three different doubles finalists for Canada, including Dabrowski winning the U.S. Open. So how do you feel about 2023 as a whole for Canadian tennis? Well, there's no doubt um, the country's done very well in doubles, and you you cited it. And I would argue that, you know, Dennis, before his injury, had some really good doubles results as well. So I think we're seeing that more of the Canadian players are adding doubles to their their entre- their their um, their their type of competition that they want to compete in, and then obviously um, Gabby is a double specialist. And you know, I'll be frank with you know, if, the, if all the singles players were on this call, they'd probably say, "Hey, it hasn't been the greatest year." But this happens in tennis. It just happens that a lot of them are are struggling a little bit at the same time, which makes it unique. You know, usually you might have one player injured and someone else is breaking through, but it's kind of like it's all come to bear in the same year. But we're optimistic that these are all young kids, you know, like Dennis and Felix and Bianca, uh, Layla, they're all like under 23 years of age. And the average age for someone in the top um, 100 now is closer to 30. So they're not even close to their prime. And then add the fact that, you know, Gabby is what, 31, but she just won her first Grand Slam uh, women's doubles. And, And there's more there's more silverware in the future of that young tennis player as well. So we're very optimistic that this is still going to be a phenomenal uh, future decade for Canadian tennis. And even though the, the U S open, the final major of the year has concluded, there's still some business to take care of with the Davis cup coming up, right? 
Yeah, Davis Cup is this week um, in Italy. Um, so the men are going to be trying to repeat. And then we've got um, the Labor Cup, which is in Vancouver the following week. And Felix will be playing for the rest of the world uh, team to try to actually defend their title they won in London uh, last year. And then you've got the Billie Jean King Cup finals that are the first week of November in Spain. And Canada is one of the 12 countries that's qualified for that. So there's no doubt that we're we're crossing our fingers that our, our women can do very, very well in Spain and maybe maybe do what the men did last year. So there's a lot of tennis to be played and um, a lot of good things for Canadian tennis fans to follow. Well, wish you the best of luck with everything, Michael. Thanks for taking time to talk to us here tonight. Thank you for the opportunity. That is Michael Downey, the CEO of Tennis Canada. Yesterday morning, I don't know if you got up early or not, I set my PVR and watched the game after I woke up, but Canada defeats the U.S. to win bronze at the FIBA World Cup. And the man we had on to preview the tournament is on now, Kirby Shep, head coach of the Manitoba Bisons, and has worked with Canada basketball before. Kirby, how much did you enjoy watching Canada win bronze yesterday morning? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a fantastic uh Seminal moment, really, for Canada basketball. I mean, when you think about they haven't uh, they haven't won since they got a medal in the, since the 30s at an international tournament, and of course their recent struggles, not even being in the Olympics since 2000. I mean, uh, yeah, it was a great, great moment, and uh, certainly, you know, I, I coached a number of those guys on age group teams throughout the years, and uh, it was just great to see them have their moment, I guess, on a world stage. So, in this tournament, they started off winning all their group stage games. They lose to Brazil in a game that really didn't ultimately matter. They that With the win against Spain, though, to come back when they were down double digits in the fourth, what did you learn about Canada in that contest that maybe led to what we saw yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you can look at a game like that and look back on, you know, on a number of the, you know, past games over the last 20 years or so where we've had high expectations. We've had NBA talent. We, you know, we liked our roster. And, you know, those were the kind of games that sometimes we'd fold, right, against an experienced European side that, uh, you know, was really more accustomed to FIBA play than a lot of the guys in our squad and, and we, where we really underperformed. And, you know, backs against the wall, guys played a great game and, uh, you know, beat a national power in Spain. So, to me, that set the stage for them going into the quarterfinal and uh, probably gave them a confidence boost going into uh, – you know, in that stage of the tournament where everyone is a really, really tough team. So they get Slovenia, Luka Doncic, and a lot of guys that play in Europe. Uh, Doncic, they hold him mostly in check after a hot start. He ends up uh, fouling out because of a couple of technicals, and Dylan Brooks as well goes out. They win that one, 189. And at that point, we're all thinking, all right, Canada versus the U.S. for gold. It's going to happen. And then they both lose in the semifinals. Uh, what happened against Serbia? Yeah, I mean... It's just a tale of two games. You mentioned Slovenia. Slovenia, in some ways, is an ideal matchup for them. Didn't really have any of the things that, you know, that gave them trouble. And then Serbia turns around, and and they have all the things that can give Canada trouble, right? They were just able to pressure up more. I mean, uh, the, the backup guard, uh, Alexa Armanovic from Serbia, really put on a show defensively, picking up uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander full court and doing a great job. And, and it, it just... There, I think you saw the experience in the FIBA style of play, the size, the physicality of Serbia really came in. I think 
you know, one of the weaknesses I think you and I talked about a couple weeks ago that we were worried about with Team Canada is, do they have enough depth inside? Can they be physical? Can a kid like Zach Eady, still a college player, can he actually have an impact? And, you know, it turns out he maybe wasn't ready for this size of a tournament. And I think ultimately that physicality inside for Serbia made all the difference. And, uh, you know, they sort of beat him up and, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't have called that an upset. Serbia is certainly a national or a world power in basketball. And, uh, you know, even without the likes of Nikola Jokic, you know, arguably the best player in the world right now. Uh, but they're still a very, very good side. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, great showing regardless. But, uh, yeah, just too tough for them, I guess, from a physical standpoint. So the U.S. lose a nail-biter to Germany. It sets up a gold or a bronze medal clash with the United States. I feel like, and I said this on Friday, I feel like we've been craving a Canada-U.S. duel in basketball. It's been a long time coming. Canada's obviously been gunning for the U.S. forever because they're right there and they've they've been on top of the world so much. We've seen Canada-U.S. in hockey, in soccer, in basically every sport, but basketball's kind of been missing that. So to get that, even going into Sunday's matchup, I know it was for bronze, but did you feel that anticipation of finally we get to see how we stack up? Yeah, I guess in a way and in a way not, because, you know, I think, you know, we all sort of hoped, I guess, that that would be a gold medal game. And I think the fact that it was a bronze medal game, the fact that, you know, two days earlier, both teams had sort of disappointing losses and, you know, didn't make it to what their expectations was of, you know, of being in a world championship final. But, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that took a little bit of luster of it. And I think you saw that early on. Like, I think, you know, both teams kind of had a bit of a feel it out. It was much less of a physical game. You know, they didn't necessarily play the FIBA style because, you know, both obviously North American teams. Um, you know, and Canada jumped out to a big lead and the USA came back. And I think you didn't see it until probably late third quarter, early fourth, where both teams sort of settled in and thought, you know what, let's try to win this thing. And, and you know, really stepped up their game and, that's when I think the game started to get entertaining and, you know, we really saw kind of the best of both teams. So, yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. It's certainly great to see that. I think to a large extent though, Canada, we just haven't had the right to, to be on that level with the U S you know, I mean, it's been a really long time since we're even really in that conversation. It certainly hasn't been a rivalry, but you know, hopefully now it'll start to become a rivalry where it's a, you know, both of us are in big games consistently year in, year out at Olympics and world championships. So Canada's leading this game almost the entire way through. U.S. go on this run in the fourth, and then it becomes, as you mentioned, just a game of a back-and-forth tilt. Canada looks like they're going to pull it out to give up this inexplicable three right at the buzzer to go to overtime. I'm crestfallen after that moment. Canada, though, outscores the USA 16-7 in overtime. What does it say about the team that they're able to recover from that what could have been a, a back-breaking play? Yeah, an absolute disaster. I mean, you have the classic, uh, you know, where they, they need a three and, uh, you know, they, they can foul and they can, you know, they absolutely have to miss the free throw intentionally, get it back, shoot a three is the only way they win. Terrible execution by Canada defensively on that play to secure the rebound. And, uh, yeah, I mean, generally, in my experience in those situations, when that's the way you went into overtime, overtime doesn't look good for you. You know, as you say, you're often defeated. And, uh, yeah, I think it speaks really highly of the character of the guys on the team. I mean, they came back and, you know, really played well in the overtime and, and really dominated the overtime. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it's just great to see and great to see the resiliency, I guess, 
because a lot of these guys are pretty young here and uh you know there's a there's a really good chunk of our roster that could be around for four six seven eight more years here of international play if they wanted to be so it's you know it really uh speaks well of this generation Shea Gilgis Alexander, for those that hadn't watched him a lot in Oklahoma City, and that's fair because how many Oklahoma City Thunder games are on national TV, I think we learned that this guy is legit one of the best scorers because whenever things kind of got a little scratchy for Canada, he'd just take the ball to the hoop and seemingly score at will almost the entire tournament. He was amazing. Yeah, he just has that silky smooth game, and you know he just sort of makes it look effortless in a way. You know, it shouldn't be a surprise, but as you say, you know, I mean, not a lot of, he's in a small market, not a lot of national TV games. Uh, he was a, you know, all NBA first team, all NBA performer this year. So, I mean, he, he had an absolutely incredible NBA season. And I mean, at 25 years old here, we've got a number of years ahead of this, of this level of basketball for Shea and, uh, yeah, just certainly great. And then, you know, Dylan Brooks absolutely was huge. He made his first six threes and had a, had a tournament high 39 points that little side note there, Dylan scored the uh, most points by a Canadian at an Olympics or world since Winnipeg legend, Carl Ridd did it in the thirties. So uh, a little shout out there to uh, local legend, Carl Ridd. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, a great, great performance by Shea and, you know, the best player stepped up at the best time. What about someone like Kelly Olenek or Dwight Powell, two guys that are more, outside fringe or more fringe players in the NBA, Powell more than Olenek is, but that have been part of this Canada basketball program from the very start, back when very few NBA guys would go to this moment now where we're we're higher than we've ever been. For them to achieve this here, especially Olenek, that's got to feel good. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly great for Kelly. Kelly's been a loyal national team guy for many, many years, probably the most loyal, really, through this whole you know, last generation, you know, he's always come out and given his best. And uh, I mean, he's had a really solid NBA career as well. And But his career has been great and he fits pretty well internationally. I mean, he can't give us the rim protection that maybe we need to some extent, but he can stretch the floor and shoot a little bit. I mean, coming full circle for a guy like Kelly, I mean, it was, tw- t- I want to say 2010, 13 years ago when he competed at a World Cup in Canada, finished their worst ever at 0-5 and, and 22nd place in the World Championship. So that was sort of our rock bottom, lowest of the low, and Kelly was a part of that. So pretty incredible for him to sort of see it around. And him, of course, being one of the veterans of the team, this could be his last kind of go at it here. Um, so hopefully he's got one more, maybe be in the Olympics next year. But uh, he's certainly towards the end of his career, so certainly great for him to sort of see the whole thing turn around. So for the United States now, Kirby, we've already seen LeBron James come out and say he wants to play in the Olympics. It seems like the reaction can be when they don't medal now because they don't take the World Cup seriously. They overcompensate and then go so hard and then they crush it at the Olympics. I feel like we're probably going to see a pretty star-studded U.S. team at the Olympics next year. Can Canada compete with that? Yeah, I mean, there's lots to these things, right? Whether these guys come on or not, the Olympics certainly has a bigger allure than the World Championships, in, in, at least in basketball. Um, you know, I think the fact that it's in Paris, there's sort of a, a marketing component there, a European marketing component that these guys, you know, they do think about, right? When, you, when you're a major international star and you, ha- you are a brand, and that's certainly a big piece of it, you know, being in Paris, being on that stage. And you're right, and then the next piece is, 
this cycle that the U.S. seems to go through of, you know, they dominate, they win a couple of gold medals, they get tired of it, they send their second and third best, they don't do well, and then they have to kind of reignite things a little bit and bring the best again. But, you know, I would question for the USA, you know, as, as big a legend LeBron is, and I'm sure they're not turning him down, you know, a 37 or so, 38-year-old LeBron, I'm not too sure how old he's going to be by next summer, um, you know, is he actually one of your best 12 players? I don't know about that. So I think the biggest thing is going to be for them is can they get enough quality big guys to play? That's where they're really thin. And you might need a guy like Anthony Davis to play, but he always has health issues. So, you know, I don't know that the answer, certainly if you had, you know, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant to your team, it certainly can't hurt. Uh, but we'll see what happens. We'll see who makes a long playoff run and uh, how those guys feel you know, if you're trying to enter a six-week training camp after the NBA season goes. Yeah, he turns 39 in December of this year, so he'll be 39 and a half in next year's Olympics. Definitely a lot to keep track of. Kirby, thanks for coming on again to talk about this, and best of luck with the Bisons this year. Great, thanks. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell until we meet again. Come on and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. Story.